0: Hello there, John McWhorter. How are you? Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? Well, Glenn Lowry here of the Glenn Show with my conversation partner every other week, John McWhorter. He is a linguist and author, teaches at Columbia University, writes regularly for the New York Times now. John and I am a professor at Brown University, a professor of economics and international and public affairs, and I am also a, a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. I'm proud to. Report. Mm -hmm. And we're here to do the thing that we do. Black guys at bloggingheads.tv talking about what we talk about. So what's up, John? Well, actually, I know what's up, man. You are really making a splash uh, in your debut as a twice weekly twice uh, Mm -hmm. newsletter contributor to the New York Times newsletter. You want to tell the audience again Mm -hmm. about about this new move that Nick Warder is making? It's a subscriber newsletter at The Times. And
1: so what they're doing is they're creating this whole new page of newsletters, and I'm one of many. And twice a week, I write a piece on either, I think my billet is either language or race or other things, including the arts, which I really am going to do because finally I'll have a chance to write about things like that without having to pitch them, without them having to be the, the newsiest thing of the week. And the idea is to not just do a column. I really, I wouldn't want to do 700 words every couple days. days. I don't think in 700 words. Each one of the things is actually a little essay. They tend to be about 1,500. So I have signed up to come up with 1,500 words on something every three days until whenever, which really, I'm, I'm punishing myself. But you know, the fun thing, Glenn, is that it seems like a lot of people <laughs> read the times. You know, you say something in there, and you <laughs> have told around. the whole world, I am really enjoying that if I say something in this newsletter, you hear from people you kind of wanted
0: to hear from. And so it is, um, the reach is astonishing. The Good for you. Is a I lot. Like it. I Uh, want people to know that this is in no way uh, interfering with the continued collaboration of Glenn and John here at the Glenn. Nothing to do with it. That's right. Okay. (laughs) don't worry. (laughs) But I do want to address to you a question that has been posed to me when I've shared the good news with people that you were doing this, which is has John sold out to the enemy? Mm -hmm. That is the woke, the woke enemy, which Mm -hmm. you would think of the times as a bastion of, Mm -hmm. you know, of wokeness. They let me say what I feel. And I say with
1: you know all due humility that a couple of the pieces I've written express opinions that you wouldn't expect to see in the times these days. And I have not gotten any pushback from them yet. And so, no, I haven't sold out. I think the idea is to basically diversify somewhat the times opinions, especially on race issues and to use the pulpit. So, no, I would be selling out if I were compromising my ideas in some way. But so far, I am mean, definitely, definitely not. I think the piece that I wrote on the Wisconsin rock, for example, that's exactly what I thought. I did not pull any punches. And they as they told me, we know what we're getting. So, yeah. Yeah, I am not Jamel Bowie. I am not going to become Charles Blow. I'm going to stay me. It's just that it's going to be at the Times.
0: Those, by the way, were the other two black guys who are writing regularly uh, in the Times uh, uh, Mm op-ed section. Yeah. And, you know, they have their views. Jamel
1: actually is one of my very favorites when he does anything but race. I mean, he knows so much and he puts it all so well. I mean, he really, he, he, he is a titan. But then when he writes about race, all of a sudden it's just the same old boo-hoo-hoo, boo-hoo-hoo racism is everywhere. And I, I can kind of see where that maybe comes from. So with his columns, if it's about race, I skip it. But if it's about anything else, I drink it in like Ambrosia. Charles Blow is very, very, very predictable. But Jamel, wow.
0: You notice how good he is? Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't quite put it that way. And I don't see everything he writes. But I agree with you that there is a discernible uh, difference in the in the level of uh, of depth and uh, originality in uh, Jamel Bowie's uh, uh, journalism that relative to Charles Blow, who I I, uh, if you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything at all. <laughs> but the um, predictable th- is, is an understatement.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think of the, the rock that was removed from its spot in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin in Madison? It was a big, giant, round rock where in 1925, one newspaper headline called it a niggerhead. And apparently, you know, calling a big giant piece of something a niggerhead used to be common. There's some other rocks and places that are called that. One person in 1925 called it a niggerhead. And so they're doing their racial reckoning at the university and somebody dug that up. And then a certain cadre of Black students decided that that meant that walking past that rock hurt them. The idea was not that one person during the Coolidge administration called it a niggerhead, but now it's niggerhead rock. That's what they call it. But nobody had been calling it that before. It's just this newspaper headline. And I read somewhere that apparently over the past few decades, it's been brought up that it was called that once. But suddenly, you know, it's not an accident that in 2020, 2021, the idea became it is offensive to us to have this rock in place on campus. And so they actually got winches and moved that rock to some other place. And that's considered a victory for anti-racism at the
0: University of Wisconsin. How feel you about that? Well, you asked me how I feel, and I want to hear you expound further because I happen to know (laughs) that you've written 1500 words (laughs) dissecting uh, the political psychology and uh, so on on uh, the side of the advocates insisting the rock be moved and the responsible officials who responded to that insistence. And I just as soon hear you talk about it as to talk about it myself. I mean, I, I could comment, but why don't you fill us in a little bit on your analysis of exactly what's being revealed about our current sensibility on racial justice questions by this incident. Well, you know what it comes down to is this. There is no such thing as a cognitively
1: sound, psychologically healthy person who walks by a rock that got called something one time almost 100 years ago and feels discriminated against and senses it as some sort of emotional burden. If that's how you feel walking by that rock under these conditions, you need therapy. You need serious psychological counseling. You should not be taking courses. You need help. If if the people are not under, if that is not what's going on, it isn't. These are not psychologically broken people. It means they're acting. They are pretending. They are making up a grievance because they consider it their duty as, as authentic, Black students during our days of racial reckoning. They're, they're, They're acting. And if they're acting, if they are claiming a grievance that, frankly, doesn't make any sense. They're Black, yes, but we Black people don't always make sense. If they're claiming a grievance that doesn't make any sense and the administration caves in and has that rock taken away, claiming that, oh, they understand, oh, they sympathize, they are being racist. They are implying that Black people are uniquely fragile, that when Black people come up with nonsense, you're supposed to pretend it makes sense because we're not capable of anything better. And so I'm disgusted by it because I think that capitulating to those students' histrionic, studious demand, studied demand, is to basically tell those students that they are monkeys rather than human beings, that they are children rather than adults. It disgusts me. And of course, you know, here and there, I'm seeing from unofficial and official channels that the people there are aware of the piece and feel that, well, for one thing, I don't understand the context, that somehow this makes sense because the school has been going through some sort of racial reckoning. But no, there's no context that makes that make sense. If there's a racial reckoning and they're trying to show they aren't racist, to pretend that it damages a student to walk by a rock that was called something one time 100 years ago is legitimate is to be a bigot. It's pure condescension. And Rebecca Blank, who is the I don't know whether
0: it's president, chancellor. I know her. I actually know her well. She's an economist. Well, that's Uh, too bad because for many years and then went into it as a research economist and then went into administration, served in the um, served in the was it Clinton administration uh, as a council of mm -hmm. economic advisors type. I'm pretty sure she goes way back i so she's I'm a very distinguished done. economist. Now, she, is she president of the University of Wisconsin?
1: Yes. And, she, I see, and I didn't know that.
0: So she's capable of close reasoning and
1: yet gives into these students on this. Rebecca Blank should realize that she committed a racist action in allowing this to take place. And I say that officially, and I do not take it back. Racist action. I'm not calling her a racist. But Rebecca Blank condescended to those students in giving in to those histrionic, made up claims of injury she shouldn't have done it and frankly if it were up to me i would take that rock and put it back where it was
0: let's game it out well let me let me summarize what i hear you saying first of all there's black fragility really you're injured by walking past an object which somebody i uh, have no three quarters of a century ago called uh actually it's more than three quarters of a century ago it's a century ago Coolidge administration um, use the yeah. n-word in reference to it and that's injurious of you 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 poor fragile uh in, in you know anything can hurt you just you know secondly you don't believe that they're really that fragile that that's that's incomprehensible so you know they're at play acting they're they're performing they there's there's something fraudulent about the whole enterprise and thirdly you say that responsible persons who would respond to such a fraudulent uh, performance of phony injury has nothing but contempt for the people to whom they're responding yes doesn't take them seriously doesn't think that they're they can withstand actually being told the truth which is please this rock is not injuring anybody and the history of it is so ancient as to be completely irrelevant to our lives today it has no institutional significance of the sort to which you ascribe it whatsoever will you grow up that's what you want them to be told, I gather. But Mm -hmm. the racist president of the University of Wisconsin, my old friend, my old friend, Rebecca Blank, (laughs) whom I know not to be a racist, at least in any form that I've ever. And she probably is not. Very sweet woman, actually, as I recall her and a very accomplished labor economist during her time when she was doing research, had a had a significant career as a research economist against discrimination for women's equality, blah, blah, blah. Uh, nevertheless, you you put you use the R word in reference to her. And I want it to be clear. I am not saying
1: Rebecca Blank is a racist because, one, I don't know. And two, she almost certainly is not under any you know, sense of the word that right. makes sense. She committed a racist act. And I know she didn't mean to, but I will say again. As I said in the piece, she did what she did out of fear. She doesn't want to be called a racist on social media. She doesn't want her university to be called racist on social media. But that means that she's giving in to being embarrassed on Twitter, as opposed to thinking about the actual dignity of those students. She committed and the school committed in sanctioning this a racist act. It was not anti-racist. It was racist.
0: Yeah, She's not alone. Mm -mm. Uh, A college administrator tempts fate, does she not? uh, If responding as you would have her do, she ends up with thousands of students gathered on the campus green in protest, uh, refusing to go to classes, occupying administrative offices. Uh, it's, It's not just being called a racist on Twitter, It is the well-functioning stability of the enterprise over which she presides. Uh, And that event, even if grounded in something profoundly unreasonable, such as her refusal to move a rock, which a century ago was referred to as niggerhead, but which ever since has just been sitting there, passively being a rock, not doing anything, (laughs) <laughs> it's not as if there's swastikas painted on the rock or there's white supremacy on the rock. The rock is just there. And uh, even if she were to do something as innocuous as point out that it's uh, hardly anything racist about it. And I, I dare say I'm not going to go through the trouble and the expense of having it move just because you're throwing a tantrum. If they're out on the green going nuts and protesting and whatnot, that's a bad outcome for the university. It's a bad outcome for her. So, is it racism or is it um, pragmatism and prudence? Pick your battles. Uh, it's easy to move the rock relative to uh, managing uh, some kind of upheaval that that might uh, that might come about, even if it's not entirely, uh, you know, sensible. Sometimes gestures that convey solidarity with uh, respect for the perceived sense of injury of another party are a kind of etiquette, a kind of um, politeness. Being responsive to those students is, I'm sorry, John, my heart's not really in the argument I'm trying to make. I know, but this is good. This is good. (laughs) It is, is a way of conveying you know that we're on the same side. We're on the side of anti-racism here, even if the particular instance of racism is a phantom to which you you point. Calling it a phantom and picking a fight with you about whether it's really racism or not is kind of tendentious and you know uh, unsympathetic. It's 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 it it, it lacks a, a kind of solidarity. Rather, people who say anti-Semitism, and then you respond by expressing a concern about any people who say anti-gay, and then you respond by expressing a concern about that, they're asking for a show of solidarity and you're being more than a curmudgeon, more than a contrarian, you're being uh, obstreperous and whatnot to uh, refuse to cede it to them. What does it cost you to cede to them a little bit of acknowledgement of, uh, of their moral concern?
1: It is part of the job of a university to inculcate a certain maturity in students. I sound like Charles Eliot Norton. It sounds, it sounds so obscure and antique, but a certain amount of maturity. And we are not going to suspend that when it comes to race issues. The idea is gonna be that everybody learns that the world can be a difficult place. We're not gonna pretend that when it comes to racism that somehow it's different. And there are issues of degree here, but when we're talking about something one person said one time hundred years ago, that's staged delicacy. That is not what racism is in any meaningful sense. And if a black student claims, you know, accompanied by a few others that she can't walk by that rock without feeling bad, that's not a legitimate claim of injury. And just because a Black person says it doesn't mean that it's automatically legitimate. And that's the problem these days. I'm standing athwart this idea that when it comes to racism, intent is less important than impact, which just means that you have to listen to whatever the Black person says. And I've heard white people you know, parrot this. I don't know what they're feeling. It's my job to just give in. No, I reject that. When we're talking about something that is so obviously nonsensical as this, I mean, this is it's not even a close call. Your job is to say, no, not that. Now, there are ways of doing it diplomatically. We're not going to take the rock away. But here are two or three other things that we can do to make this a less racist institution. Now, maybe some of this, Glenn, maybe part of the problem is that it's easier to remove a rock Than to automatically hire some number of black faculty, you know, when frankly there might not be any black faculty to be had in the for those particular lines, easier to go get a crane and and to move a rock. But still, it's just, it's such a hopeless case. And, you know, another thing is, and I don't, I don't expect a Rebecca Blank to think about this, Um, not her specifically here, but just as a generic category. But, you know, even if that rock had been called niggerhead rock you know, regularly until, say, about 1975. And then I'm in college decades later, and I find out that it used to be called that. I would feel that the removal of the rock meant that the racists in the past won. You know, I'm walking by the rock decades later. Nobody calls it that anymore. It's something you have to learn from some of the old heads. And, you know, most people don't know it and then you find out it used to be called that by people, most of whom are now dead, and you just can't take it. Oh, my sanity, oh, I feel there's so much racism and now there's this, every time I walk by, I get a little headache. No, that means that the bigots won. I don't want that rock taken away. Imagine now the rock's not there. The idea being people called it something, we can't bear to look at it, and so we're gonna to take that rock and put it somewhere else. It's such a capitulation. You know, and the person in response to me will say, well, why should we have to fight? But the thing is, it's a staged demand. You weren't fighting. You were just fine. You were walking by that rock texting. They're trying to come up with a way of participating in the struggle when the struggle is more abstract than it used to be. But that's me speaking to the students. You know, Stick your fist in the air and stop pretending. You know, just leave the rock alone. But in this case, it wasn't even 1975. You know, it's not niggerhead rock. It's somebody called it a niggerhead in 1925, but we're supposed to pretend not to understand the distinction between those two kinds of cases.
0: It won't do. Okay, let let, let me try again. Uh, The University of Wisconsin goes this argument. This is the argument on behalf of removing the rock. This is a justification for students making a set of demands that you're objecting to. The University of Wisconsin uh, is and has been, has always been a racist institution. That's our starting point. Uh, Here at Brown, where I teach, the fact that the university's endowment grows, comes out of, in part, a fortune that was accumulated based on uh, trafficking slaves. And in, textile and banking and insurance uh, and so forth, uh, businesses that were uh, 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 bolstered by their involvement with the slave South in the late 18th and into the 19th century is a major issue here uh, in the first year, we when we our freshman students come in, they all read, over the summer before they begin classes, a common text, and then there are seminars organized to discuss this common text. Uh, that's a tradition that's been going on for many years here at Brown. The last two years, that text has been the Slavery and Justice Committee's report on the history of Brown University's entanglement with slavery, Now, that entanglement with slavery ended before the Civil War. Uh, In fact, the Brown family, which endowed the university, was itself divided between brothers who were on either side of the question of abolition before the Civil War. And the abolitionist brother won out in in, in the end in this dispute within the family. That was 175, 200 years ago. But today... Uh, Brown is, uh, there's a Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice, which has been uh, established uh, to memorialize and to carry on into the 21st century, the uh, recognition of Brown's moral uh, culpability in uh, the history of its uh, fortune, big basis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, Woodrow Wilson his name was taken off of the School of Public Policy at Princeton. Princeton and Woodrow Wilson haven't had anything to do with each other since the the brother Wilson died. What was that? <laughs> 1919 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. in the spirit of Cornell West, we're all brothers, you know. But but I'm, I'm saying he died in the 20s. He died like 100 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying in other words If to take your position, it seems to me that you really have to stake out uh, the following. We're not a racist institution here at the University of Wisconsin. This, uh, Neither are we here at Brown. This history that you people are blowing up into a federal case and that you're going uh, uh, apoplectic about is all you've got. All you've got is the name of a rock from hundred years ago. That's all you've got because real racism, let me tell you what it looks like, okay? It looks like what Jim Crow South looked like a uh, hundred years ago, real race, But the University of Wisconsin today is run by progressive enlightened people. It is a part of an, a society which is itself the freest and most tolerant and most diverse uh, multi-ethnic democracy ever to have graced the planet Earth. You're the most privileged amongst the most privileged people alive now, et cetera, et cetera. You'd have to get into an argument about that. Um, But the defenders of it are saying this history has a continuity. Georgetown University sold slaves in 1840 that they owned in order to not go bankrupt. You must make amends for that. You must make reparation for that. Brown University, the grounds on which it stands were acquired by money that is dripping with blood because it was involved in the slave trade. Well, everything was involved in the slave trade by one or two degrees removed in the middle of the 19th century in the United States of America. You you, you can't find a fortune that didn't in some way or another touch on the slave trade because cotton was so ubiquitous and finance and insurance, transportation, providing a uh, 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 the uh, raw materials that supported the agriculture in which slave labor fed the benefits from that, et cetera. So anyway, I ramble. I don't mean to do that. I mean, there's a more fundamental issue here about how we uh, look at the past and about disabusing these kids of their presumption of moral superiority because they can uh, point with the benefit of hindsight to the way people were living 100 years ago and say that they are offended by that when what they're really doing is saying there's a continuous connection between that and the institutions today, and it's those institutions that we seek to indict. And they're wrong about that, but they need to be engaged in disabuse of the claims that they're making. There's nothing morally suspect about the University of Wisconsin in the 21st century. It's an engine of opportunity. It's a gateway into the middle class for the residents of that state and et cetera, et cetera. And moreover, the fact that Black students on the campus may not feel comfortable probably has more to do with the extent of their own preparation for the competitive meritocratic challenges of a high-end education than it has to do with racism. So this argument would go and you see why people don't want to make it, because it'll get you on the wrong side of of an industry of of complaint uh, and, and supposed entitlement. Reparations?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's that it's um, part of what forms my feeling about these things. And we're going to overlap a little bit with a conversation we have recently, but I think it's necessary is the question of when it stops. And if the idea is that it never stops, that. The institution is just so permanently racist that we can just assume that for generations, there will be endless protests about endless things. Then it's a different conversation than I think most of us thought we were having. And I'm not sure how constructive it is. And so, for example, okay, the rock is gone in Wisconsin. And of course, what's next? And, you know, I beg pardon if I'm wrong, but I can't help thinking that next year there'll be something else or the year after that proves that you're having a racist experience to be Black at the University of Wisconsin. It can't stop with The Rock. It has to be this endless work. But why? You know, what? why is it that it can never be admitted that an apology happened, that the apology is, is sincere, the apology is accepted, and one moves on? And I think Brown is a beautiful example of that because we saw this huge reckoning there in the aughts including this center that you're talking about, all these things happen, and yet there's still the boy I call Malcolm. There are still people walking around at Brown talking about how it's a deeply racist institution. What more could be done? And if that's an unwelcome question, if people roll their eyes, you know, I just just somehow don't get it. No, I think I do get it, and that's the problem. The idea is that your place in the institution is to decry its racism. That's the most interesting thing about you. And that... It's a very modern way of being a non-white person. And it's interesting. There's this new series. It's hard for me to watch, to be honest, because it cuts so close. It's on Netflix. It's called The Chair. And it's about- i yeah, watched you six, all six episodes. I'm down to the, the final one. I haven't seen the sixth episode. I can kind of tell how things are going to go. But there's just one 30-second segment where I thought to myself, oh, my God, that is so what the problem is, which is when the kids are doing their presentations about Moby Dick. And it's clear that to the class, the most interesting thing about Moby Dick is to talk about how it's there, var- it's IST that, you know, that no women, that it's it's racist, yeah. you know, and those things are certainly true. I actually put myself through Moby Dick five or six years ago. Magnificent piece of work. But yes, it's utterly backwards in terms of our our notions of diversity. Did you read it with
0: students? Excuse students. me. Did you read it with students?
1: No, I read it alone because uh-huh. I was tired of pretending that I'd read it. And yeah. I really loved it. But no, yeah, it's- no,
0: Melville Melville's a badass motherfucker. Let me just put it yeah. like that. Melville what got a the record
1: with- book. But no, you're not going to learn about women or you know all sorts of things are not in there and of course it's just a tv show and it was just one clip but i remember thinking that's one of those classes where the most interesting thing about melville is what he wasn't in terms of our judgments today as opposed to when you're supposed to think that the bob Balbin, bob balaban character the little old white guy he's the evil one he's waiting for close engagement with, with the, the text. text and that's considered <laughs> all wrong and that black Young professor is considered, you know, cutting edge. And yeah, these are characters in a show, but yeah, yeah. it's that, it's that the idea that the most interesting thing now is to decry racism rather than to do work. <laughs> and that worried me because I think we were supposed to look at that scene and think, yeah, yeah this, this is modern. Or maybe I'm oversimplifying what they intended. But I remember thinking, yes, you do want to talk about what Melville wasn't, but if that's the main meal, Bob Balaban is right. You should be also engaging with the text as it is with its subtleties and complexities, whether or not there are any women around and however you're supposed to feel about brown people in it. It's too simple is the problem to go through Moby Dick and to come out of it thinking there were no this is and there were no that's. And it's an ist society. That's easy. You know, you might want to mention it. There's some things that can be said, but there's so much that takes more effort that in terms of engaging that book, whole courses are taught on it, you know, such as by my colleague Andy Delbanco here at Columbia, whole courses. You're gonna abjure all of that just to make modern statements about how undiverse the, the, the book is. And yet I can tell for a lot of people that the answer to that is yes, that's what this rock thing is. It come, comes out of. And it just, it's not what school is supposed to be.
0: Okay, well, I'm sitting here thinking about Columbus uh and about columbus day which is indigenous people's day now it's the fall holiday it's the first fall holiday a long weekend here at uh, brown and maybe a lot of places i don't know in october uh a three-day weekend i teach on monday and wednesday so i don't have class on on what used to be called columbus day and it's not now called indigenous people's day i have a question and the question is whether or not you regard that demand now the demand of the indigenous Mm. population and its um, allies. That uh, the statue of Columbus that used to sit in the park on the lakefront in Chicago, but that was defaced during the George Floyd riots and then removed by city administration uh, to the chagrin of the Italian American community who looked at uh, Columbus as one of their heroes. Um, or uh, places like Brown University quite explicitly. I mean, it's not like you were calling them um, the Washington Redskins football team. You merely called the holiday Columbus Day. You merely called the exposition at 500 years after, 400 years, I should say, after um, uh, 1492 that uh, Chicago uh, had, which I think is the source of that statue of Columbus, that park, uh, the Columbian exposition of 1892 in Chicago, um, you know, you are honoring the, quote unquote, discovery of the new world. And the uh, latter day sensibility is that that was a crime, uh, or at least it was the early stages of a massive historic crime. But it occurs to me that it was also the foundation of our of our civilization here in in, uh, the Western Hemisphere. It was the beginning of a massive historical transformation, the consequences of which furnish our lives. It's the world we live in. Um, So what am I trying to ask? I'm trying to ask you to move from this trivial example of the moving of a rock to something that's much more substantial, but that is a cousin, it seems to me, to the moving of the rock. Why did we rename that holiday? Why are we uh, abjuring and honoring of Columbus, the the explorer and adventurer whose uh, uh, breakthrough uh, opened up a historical process that has created the modern world? What what are we, in order to assuage the uh, concerns of the indigenous population, did we owe them that? Are you guilty to be at a place called Columbia? Where'd that come from uh it, you know are, are are we standing on the uh graves of uh, people who are the victims of a genocidal uh racist uh you know uh uh historical evolution is is that how we want to think about it is that our narrative
1: you know it's um it's interesting editors I have a text that I have to answer. And so please pause this. Glenn, I'm with you. This is a a quick family thing. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, yeah, for one thing, I want to say that I get the Confederate statue thing. You know, you have to, you have to go case by case, but I completely understand why somebody would not want to have, you know, for example, General Lee in the middle of a public plaza. You're going to see that. Excuse me
0: for interrupting, but I just want to go back to something you said earlier. They're injured when they have to walk by and look Mm -hmm. at it. Is -hmm. it real? Is that injury real or are they faking? Are they performing being hurt? Are they overly fragile or is it really injurious to have to look at Robert E. Lee every day if you're a black person in 2021?
1: And in this case, injurious, no, but it's kind of lousy to have Somebody there whose most significant achievement was to battle for your own enslavement. I can see a conversation where that statue gets put in a museum or something like that. So I don't want people to think that I don't understand this kind of demand. I think the business with that particular rock was absurd and ought to have been called so. But on Native Americans, I honestly have always thought about that sort of thing a lot whenever I'm just in a parking lot. You're in a shopping center, and I think there's this concrete on the ground. There were people here living their lives, and you know, hundreds of tribes were basically you know, decimated by the coming of the white man, so to speak. And you know, it's the decimation was so thorough that I think we all know that there's nothing that really can be done. It happened. It was a tragedy. It's centuries later. We're here, and we just have to deal. I don't. We can't give the land back. There are very few people even remaining to give the land back to. It's impossible. But with Columbus, you know, honestly, I get that because you have to, this gets into Rousseau. Suppose neither Columbus nor anybody had come and quote unquote discovered um, the noble world. savage. Suppose, yeah, suppose that people had not come together in that way, that there wasn't this, you know, flowering of Westernism all over. The world. Some people might say that it would be better that peoples had not come together, that white men didn't come and decimate those Native Americans first with germs and then also with outright abuse and and what today can be called genocide. Suppose the white people have just stayed in Europe. And today the Taino Indians were still doing what they do and living the lives that they wanted to lead. Would that really be so bad? Now, I don't know. That's a tough one. That's for a philosophy class. That's for a class in political Again, science, excuse me,
0: excuse me, injecting. But the blacks would have stayed in Africa. Would that really be so bad? Would it have? You know, to tell you the truth. And these I'm were not in, saying yes, I'm not saying no.
1: I got these were imperfect, to answer that question. Imperfect societies. But some people would say it'd be better if, you know, no Africans had been taken As slaves, in which case there would be these not literate, but thriving civilizations in Africa, untouched by the evil of the white man. You can talk about it. But as far as Columbus, Glenn, to tell you the truth, I'm not an expert, but I've never heard much good about him. You know, he came. He was not just racist, but even a little more racist than many people of his time. He had no pity for the Native Americans there. He did not come with a good heart. I am not aware that he was an extraordinary person. He was first. He got here first. But if he hadn't done it, somebody else would have. I don't think he was a very good man. He just happened to be first. I can sympathize with how Italian-Americans might feel. But I can see a conversation where you say that Cristofo Colombo is not celebrated as an individual because he was really mean. Woodrow Wilson was mean, too. But you know, Christopher Columbus was the same thing his whole life. What else was there? What was good about him? I'm not sure there was much of anything. He was just this you know, kind of proto-capitalist who wanted to make his fortune and was a little more persistent about getting across the ocean than some other people had been, and also lucky.
0: Was he a hero? Maybe he wasn't. You know, I don't I don't know anything about him, to be honest with you. Thomas uh, Jefferson was a hero, despite his views. I think Christopher Columbus was just kind of a shithead. Uh, I think, quote, unquote, <laughs> the discovery of the new world, quote, unquote, is a historic event in the uh, evolution of human history over the last 500, 550 years. Um, because it's the it's the cutting edge of a historical dynamic where the uh, Europe. uh undertakes its basically its conquest and its domination of the rest of the planet, that actually happened. Uh, we could go into all the reasons why, I'm not gonna claim this kind of expertise, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a, a way of acknowledging the uh, massive consequence of the uh, expansion of European influence out of Europe itself into uh, the Western hemisphere and into uh, Asia and Africa. Uh, but it's especially the opening up of the Western hemisphere. No, it wasn't pretty. Um, it was ugly. I mean, Columbus was not alone in being mean. I mean, mean is putting it mildly. I mean, murderous and, and uh, greedy and acquisitive and racist. And they were, you know, they were what they were. Um, but I, I don't know. There's something too easy to me about this cherry picking ex post facto uh, historical moralizing. I say cherry picking because, I mean, is there any period in human history where there hasn't been conquest, occupation, domination, uh, extermination anywhere on the planet? What did the Mongol hordes do coming out of of, uh, East Asia? What were the native populations of various tribes doing amongst one another. What were the African populations of various stripes doing amongst one another? The millions of Africans who were sold into bondage was sold by other Africans, having had their freedom extirpated in con- combat and conquest. I mean, so that's the way of the world. The modern world was made by processes that left a lot of skulls and, sh- and sh- you know, uh, shriveled bodies and starvation and butchery uh and whatnot so so i i don't know it's just too it's just too easy and, and i find this question of the counterfactual suppose they hadn't done it then what to be fascinating what would the average life expectancy of the people descended from these dominated populations be but for <laughs> you know the encounter with the modern world i, I don't know I, I i i hesitate here because i my knowledge base is not uh, rich enough to support any confident uh, kind of claims on but but i i just find this kind of uh, uh picking and choosing uh out of history the good guys and the bad guys and uh labeling people uh on the basis of that uh as uh it's is just uh, way too easy, way too simplistic.
1: Yeah, there's a um, there's a factoid that I think got out there. And I think roots had a lot to do with it. And that is a very dated reference now. I've noticed that you can't talk about roots with students today because it was too long ago. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago. <clears throat> And I remember, you know, watching it on TV when I was 10 and my mother made me read the book. It was very much a meme for about 15 or 20 years after 1976. And when I think about you know, the nature of people and the idea that white people are devils, that there's something uniquely rapacious about white people, the meme that I always think of is that in Roots, Kunta Kente is depicted as I think he's going out for a walk. And he gets caught by slavers. So the idea is that white people are walking around with nooses and lassos and catching black people. And even at the time, I remember thinking, how many people could they have caught like that? I remember thinking, if you need to have these, you know, hundreds of people on some plantations, depending on where you're going, wouldn't Africans near the coast have just stopped going for walks or you know, kind of move further inland? How many people are you going to catch that way? And so it made for good drama, but I think is, is now pretty generally, accepted. Alex Haley made most of that stuff up. I mean, it was a grand tale, but yeah, Kunta, he wasn't even related to Kunta Kinte. Kunta Kinte, it was, it's a whole story. He made that stuff up. As you just said, slaves were sold into slavery by other Africans. They didn't think of themselves as all Africans in contrast to white people. They thought of themselves as themselves and the other people as no good. That is unfortunately human nature, and it doesn't change just because everybody's brown. And what it means is that slaves were sold because Africans were fighting among one another. And what you did with the people you captured was you sold them to the whites in order to get some gold or whatever they were giving back. That was the way it was. And so evil is pretty widely spread. And I've noticed, I used to sometimes share that with Black students. This was mostly when I was at Berkeley and I was doing more teaching of pidgin and creole languages. And I would tell them that, you know, the context here, you know, these, these languages that formed amid slavery, the slaves were you know sold by other Africans. And I remember a lot of the students really couldn't believe that. They couldn't imagine that that's how it happened. And there was nothing ugly going on. I remember with one of them, I actually gave her some sources and tried to make it clear that this is actually the way it went, but they just couldn't believe it. Their idea was that white people are evil and Africans lived in this kind of harmony, et cetera. No, not really. You're right. And so I think that it has to be a case by case basis. These things have to be carefully decided because, yeah, humanity has been evil always. And If you 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 can't knock down every single statue, you can't you can't give America back to the Native Americans. But
0: there are some cases. Let let me try this and see how you react. The history was bloody, brutal, racist. Uh, It involved domination. It involved uh, genocidal uh, uh, dynamics in uh, many instances. Um, And the West came to dominate the world for a period of time. And we can sort out how we think that was good, bad, or indifferent, but the West was not just militaristic and exploitative domination. It was and is also the evolution of a set of ideas, ideas about liberty, about the dignity of the person, about representative government, about et cetera. It leads to movements like emancipation, uh, which flourished uh, in Britain as well as here in the United States, and ultimately extirpated slavery. Uh, It leads leads to universal declarations of human rights. It it leads to a situation where we're appalled at the treatment of women in certain societies as being barbaric. Those ideas come substantially, not entirely, not exclusively, but substantially out of the same uh, cultural matrix that uh, we we decry as uh, white supremacist and genocidal. Um, If you look around the world today, there is still slavery in many places, not any place in the West, not any place where the West has a significant influence. Um, You know, the uh, uh, liberation of people, of sexual uh, orientation and so forth, again, is something that's largely celebrated in Western societies and all of that. So. um, a, A supple and complex moral sensibility would take these things on board and would not have our students in the 21st century walking around looking at the color of their skin and deciding on the basis of that who were intrinsically victims and who were intrinsically oppressors Uh, in fact the very language that we have for indicting history the the language of freedom of equality of, of human dignity and of liberty anti-racism, the very language, is itself a product of the Western uh, political, economic, uh, and social uh, evolution that uh, people are, are uh, so quick to decry. I mean, so there's something so anachronistic ab- about this, using our present-day sensibilities, which have come about because of the historical processes that we're indicting, like the civil rights movement and all of that, that uh, are the foundation on which we now stand as we make our moral assessments, and projecting it backwards to people who did not have the benefit of of our hindsight, uh, and and who were captives of the time in which they lived, so. You know,
1: it all comes down, it's entropy. All of that stuff is easy. It's easier to pretend we need to dismiss Thomas Jefferson and all of his achievements than to actually assess what his achievements were and to assess the society that has come to exist in the wake of a lot of his ideas, not to mention actions. There, I like this abjure word we're using today. There's an abjuration of complexity in all this. And you know, you can go back a hundred years to the White boys at Yale and Harvard, you know, who had gone to elite prep schools, but didn't belong at a school that was demanding getting their gentleman sees and drinking their way through the four years. They, too, were trying to find what was easiest. There's a long tradition of that in the history of humanity. Basically, you always want to try to make things easier and students are always trying to get over The modern way that you do it, if you are not a white student, and sometimes if you join the other students as a fellow traveler, even if you're a white student, the way you make things easier is by shaking your fist at people who, as you put it, were captives of their past. It's an easy score and it scares the suits to death and you can get whatever you want. And I think often what they want is just to create some drama and to have kind of a vacation from doing the real work of figuring out what systolic pressure is and mastering Spanish's irregular verbs and doing, doing real work. And it just has to be seen as that. But instead, because of our moment, if it has anything to do with race or racism, a certain kind of person turns tail and runs into the forest. It's Interesting, and the, the Times is not editing me that hard in terms. It's my voice for the most part. But I talked about in the piece. In the piece, what's written is that the um, the administration's tails went up in the air as they ran into the forest like their deer. And what I real originally wrote was their white tails went up as they ran into the and i meant it i meant the white and the times had me pull it and i'm glad they did maybe i didn't need to go that far but what i was really thinking is it is white tails because of the bungalow that i stayed in this summer there are a lot of deer, and i've watched them you make a noise and oh you're seeing and, them scamper off into the yeah, woods, and of, they, they have these white pride. tails and they run off and i thought that reminds me of these
0: administrators but the white was intended and that's what that's what it is so, so what kind of reaction have you gotten from readers to that piece Do they write in and uh, do you allow comments at the newsletter on on the they are not and I'm also there's a place where people write in and I
1: am frankly I don't know if the times is going to want to hear me say this it's my policy I don't I can't dwell on the feedback to you know just like most of our conversations I'm too busy generating more content but from, you know, the people who I have heard from on the Wisconsin Rock, of course, there are some people who you know think I'm a sellout, et cetera, et cetera. But I've heard a lot of positive feedback on that one from people who are liberal slash left. You can sense that there is a huge groundswell out there of people who are on the right side of things, who are progressives, who are very diligent about checking themselves for subtle racism, but who understand that, especially over the past year or two, something has gone wrong. And they understand that this rock business was a farce. It's a it's a groundswell out there now, of course, most of those people wouldn't say these things publicly. They cherish people like you and me for saying what they feel they cannot say without you know, putting their jobs or their social lives in peril. And I can understand that. But no, I don't think I wrote anything pushing the envelope. I think I wrote something that is common consensus and a lot of people are going to say it's racist consensus. But frankly, they're wrong. They're being melodramatic. They're oversimplifying. They're wrong. I think that you and I are right in the middle on something like The Rock. So yeah, that's the that's the response that I got on that one, and I did a piece recently on the notion of sellout.
0: Oh, and, I wanted to ask you what you've done most recent because I'm not able to keep up with you, John. <laughs> Fifteen hundred words twice a week—I can barely read that much, let alone have you I don't writing know that much. Why oh. I'm
1: agreed to do this, but the sellout. sellout
0: one, okay, t- tell me about that
1: sellout. I just wrote that. Um, God, what did I write? Oh, that it is not. Um, I've never met one. I just I said that I know all the people who are often called that, including myself. And I said that I know a lot of them well. You know, I've met all of them once or twice. The only one I've never met, Candace Owens.
0: Oh, but so these are that, ra- these are black sellouts because yeah, you can know, be a sellout by you, uh, just going you, over to the me, Clarence business. Thomas. OK, so black Steele. people who have sold yeah, out. Okay, that, OK, people on that list. Yeah, you know, and you've never met one and never met one. Explain I that. like I've
1: you know, I have met Clarence Thomas twice. Yeah. And I didn't sense that he didn't believe what he puts out. I didn't sense that he was trying to make a buck or trying to be famous by selling Black people out and saying he doesn't believe that. That's not it. I've met Ward Connerly. Have I? I've communicated with Ward Connerly out in California who spearheaded Prop 209 that banned racial preferences. He, I've read his, his, bio, his autobiography. Yeah, I know him. He, he meant what he meant very much so i never have shelby Steele is not a sellout you are not a sellout i have never met that character and yet people throw that word out there as if somebody like me knows that what i'm saying doesn't really hold water knows that it's hurting black people but i'm gonna say it anyway because somebody's gonna pay me and the thing is that uncle tom figure is fun as it is to imagine i've never met him at this point i've never met her You know, that that person does not exist. And I feel like after over 20 years, I would have met that person. And you and I have the same experience. You're in a green room and you're talking to Armstrong Williams. You know, it's it's not a sellout. And so I just say in the piece that that is not thinking when you're going to dismiss a certain kind of black thinker is a sellout, you're settling for something very simple rather than hearing them out. And, you know, opening up to the fact that there are different ways of being a black thinker and that if you don't think of decrying racism as the central task of being a black thinker, it doesn't mean that you're a sellout. It means that you have a different perspective on what you do about racism than the other people.
0: Okay, uh, we got to bring this to a close. Let me let me ask you one final question here. So as you know, there's an election that's coming, I think, September 18 in California, uh, a recall election for the governor, uh, Newsom, and uh, Larry Elder, a Black conservative radio personality that you can see on Fox News being interviewed by Sean Hannity or uh, Tucker Carlson or somebody frequently, a Black conservative, is the leading candidate in the Uh, who's not the governor himself. Gavin Newsom is the governor. The election has a two-stage design. First, you vote yes or no on whether to recall the governor. Then you vote on if you be recalled, who would you rather uh, have be governor if you want him to recall? And uh, if 50% plus one want to recall the governor, then amongst the like 17 candidates or 32 candidates, however it is, The one who has the most votes will become the governor of the state. That's the way that Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of the state uh, 20 years ago. So now, Larry Elder, is he a sellout? The Los Angeles Times has said of him that he is the black face of white supremacy. Okay, that sounds like selling out to me. Uh, I'm not asking you whether or not you would vote for Larry Elder if you were in California. I mean, that's a hypothetical of no particular interest. The question is, how do you feel about the role that race is playing in the response to Larry Elder, who's a conservative? I mean, you could be against him for a lot of different reasons, but is, is he a sellout? Is, is, is there something significant in the racial debate about it? How, how do you read that?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I just the other day it occurred to me, oh, my God. A black conservative is about to become the governor of California. It's got I got a very he's, good chance. It's going to take it. It's, it's close. And so there's going to be a person in power. For one thing, he's, um, he's a libertarian, which is somewhat different. Yeah. Um, but Larry is a good example. And I've met him and I've read three of his books. Three, two, two. His first one was 10 Things You Can't Say in America. And five of them were about race. And then there was one. See, this is what the thing about Larry. One of his next books was called "Stupid Black Men." Now, why do you have to call a book that? And I'm, I'm sure to par- sell the
0: book because
1: <laughs> you want You want You want to sell the book. And the, and the paperback was called something more temperate because I think it put too many people off. He's not. And this is something I actually mentioned in the piece. I hate to admit I was kind of thinking of him when I wrote this paragraph in the piece. He believes everything that he says. And what Larry believes is that black people need to just shape up. He made a lot of money in real estate, just kind of, you know, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. And he feels that everybody else just needs to do the same thing. Now, that to me and probably you is a little oversimplified. Um, You could have a richer conversation about uplift and systemic racism, et cetera, than that. And I don't think anybody ever asks him to have it. So he's not inclined to it. He wants to sell books. He's always wanted to be famous. He was on TV. He had a. He was on one of those judge shows, Moral Court. He did that. And I don't think it quite caught on. But you can see what he's trying to do. He wants to be, he probably wants to be richer. He wants to be famous. He wants to sell his books. He wants to be out there. But that doesn't mean that he's insincere. It just means that he's a, a self-promoting, bold, bold stroke, basic colors, rather bumptious personality. So that's a perfect example. Some people might not like Larry Elder. That doesn't mean that he's getting his and stepping on other Black people to do it. He means everything he's saying. That's a very good example of that. Some of us are more inclined to debate than others. You know, he's he's not one of them, but that doesn't mean that he's a fake. That doesn't mean he's an Uncle Tom. It just means that he is not looking at things the way Certain other people do. OK, so I,
0: you still have not met a black sellout. Never met that person. Have you? But you have met Larry Elder. No. And actually, yeah. I can't contradict what you say. I think people have some of them conservative views and they sincerely believe what they what they think. Now, are they grinding an axe or, you know, playing a stick or uh, a grifting? I mean, sure. This there's some of that that goes on in, in on all sides of every issue of people uh, trying to do do uh, well by doing good. But do they not believe in what they're saying and are just saying it in order to get paid? Uh, I wouldn't say that about any of the people that you've uh, that you never met. Them. But I will say this. I see some similarity between the phenomenon of Eric Adams in New York's mayoral situation and the phenomenon of Larry Elder in the California gubernatorial situation. Adams is not a libertarian, as far as I can tell. He's not even a conservative in the conventional political senses Mm. that uh, that Larry Elder is. But he is a black guy who is representing something that the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd rioters, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, anti-racist abhor he's somebody who is friendly toward traditional values. He's somebody who wants law and order brought to bear on the streets of the cities. He he may be someone, I'm not uh, living in New York city. I'm not living in California. I don't follow these people as closely as I otherwise might do, but may even be someone who has some doubts about uh, some of the more uh, AOC friendly uh, climate uh, issues or, whatever, you know, the, the sort of uh, ultra woke, ultra progressive um, uh, sensibility on non racial issues, uh, that is Adams, that is Elder. And I, I'm wondering if we're not seeing a uh, interesting phenomenon at the ballot box of uh, independents, moderates, centrists uh, who were being driven into the arms of candidates like Eric Adams or like Larry Elder by the excesses of both the black radical, uh, uh, anti-racist uh, agitators and their liberal white pee in the pants, white deer tail uh, visible <laughs> as they scamper away, uh, allies uh, amongst the amongst the white progressives. I wonder if we're not seeing the beginning of an of an interesting trend. I wonder if they're not harbinger's for where the Democratic Party might find itself in the, the next year's election or uh, the twenty twenty four presidential cycle. Uh, a reaction against their complicity with the people who say america ain't shit white supremacy is determining everything racism 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 and who have nothing to say when black mobs like they did in chicago the other day assault innocent white bystanders who happen to be walking by on north state street in the middle of the day and beat them to a pulp in public and s- robbed them um, and then and twerk and, and uh, dance in the streets uh, while this is going on. You can find the video effortlessly. This happened. Uh, it happened at 400 North State they, Street what three or four days ago. The, the, all you see the is the video. There are a bunch of uh, young kids, African-Americans, who are on the street milling about. White guy is walking along, minding his own business. Somebody comes up to him and hits him like that. He goes down. People beat him and kick him. Cars are driving around this injured person lying in the street. Uh, People are dancing on the sidelines out of uh, a sense of celebratory engagement with uh, the assault. And every one of the people involved in either the assault or its celebration are Black. Uh, And there were two victims depicted in the video that I saw to which this happened. I go on, I shouldn't. The only thing I'm trying to say is if you had reversed the races of those people, uh, we'd have George Floyd Floyd 2.0 and cities would be burning right now. Well, white people who are offended by the racism exhibited by black mobs beating innocent white bystanders to a pulp and cheering cheering the beating on are not gonna burn down cities, but they may well behave differently when they get to the ballot box if they have a way of expressing their uh, their uh, concerns and, and their fears and their anger. And it might be that an Eric Adams or uh, a uh, Larry Elder, by in virtue of being black, this is my point, the fact that they're black and not parroting this line becomes a way of people having uh, a sense of, yeah, I'm, I want to be on the right side of the civil rights questions, but I damn sure hate what these racial progressives are doing to our cities and to our culture.
1: Yeah, that's,
0: that's
1: going to happen. Isn't it interesting that what we're supposed to think is that what you're describing is an anecdote. It's a mere anecdote. And yeah. we're supposed to listen to a certain kind of academic say that we have to understand that those black people are acting out against a society that doesn't love them. That's just not going to fly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that has percolated about as far as it's going to go. I would be with you on that. We might be seeing it might be too early to tell. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. There's a hunger out there to show that you're not a racist, but also not go crazy, not be insane. There's a certain there's only so much cognitive dissonance that I think the typical human being can take. Yeah, it would be very interesting to see a political movement based on that or this affecting who gets into office and who doesn't. We'll see.
0: OK, I think that's a wrap, John, for this particular episode of The Glenn Show, uh, which people can find at Uh, We're going to move on to the Q&A available for submitting questions for John and I to consider uh, to those who do subscribe to uh, the Substack newsletter where we post the podcast. Uh, we're going to move on to that next. So thank you very much. Uh, signing off temporarily and...